Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, and I'm back with another episode of the SBL podcast. And today we've got the awesome Colin Edwin with us. And Colin was the bass player, or is the bass player, for the phenomenal band featuring one of my favourite drummers, Porcupine Tree. I should say that the band is called Porcupine Tree, the drummer is not called Porcupine Tree. <laughs> the drummer is called Gavin Harrison, which is, he's just a, such a, a phenomenal drummer. You've got to check him out. And if you haven't heard of Porcupine Tree before, you should also check them out. They are, they're kind of underground, but huge. A lot of my friends, when I talk about Porcupine Tree, said, oh, I haven't heard of them. But if you go on YouTube and check them out, you'll see that these guys have played some, like they've played arenas, you know, they were absolutely ginormous. Um, and have a, a huge under, underground following. So definitely go check them out. If you are on the site watching this, just scroll down and you'll be able to see um, some videos that I've posted on the podcast page that, so you can check out Colin playing with Porcupine Tree, the band, and some of his own stuff as well because he's got his own projects going on. And if you're not on the site, just go over to scottsbasslessons.com, navigate to the podcasts, and you'll find it there. Now, before you go and check out the uh, check out the podcast, I also want to say a little bit of an apology because the audio, Colin's audio, is a little bit on the dodgy side, and that is absolutely our fault. Uh, well, my uh, my computer's fault actually. For some reason, I up- upgraded the operating system, and it defaulted. Um, some of the audio capture software that we use back to its original settings. And obviously I didn't check it. And so essentially we're having to use the camera audio uh, for Colin's audio. So it sounds like he's talking down a phone a little bit. So, but my audio is okay. So it's half and half. So apologies about that, um, but it is absolutely listenable too. And you will, you know, you'll get a ton of great info from it because Colin is well, he's a badass. Um, also, before you check out this week's podcast, I want to tell you about a brand new course that we're releasing into the Academy this week. In fact, we're releasing it into the Academy tomorrow, into the Academy course library. And we were lucky enough to get Phil Mann up to the up to SBR Towers. Uh, Phil is a fantastic bass player, fantastic educator. He's taught at places like the Players School of Music, Jeff Berlin's uh, school out in Florida. And he's also taught at the Institute here in London. Um, he's, a, he's, he's just a really great bass player, but but you know, his education is absolutely top notch. So if you are an Academy member, look out for that coming tomorrow. That'll be on the, oh, my memory's going, it's the 18th, 18th of October. So October 18th, which will be a Tuesday. So if you're listening to this after that, obviously it's, it's in the Academy already for you. Um, and the, and the, the course is called the Chord Tone Concepts Masterclass. It's over two hours of material where he takes you through a ton of different chord tone concept exercises, how to apply them to your bass so you learn the entire fingerboard, upside down, inside out, and back to front. They're really fantastic exercises. In fact, for one of the sessions in the course, he gets me in as well and gives me a bit of a roasting, I've got to say. So look out for that, guys. It's coming on the 18th, so October the 18th, into the Academy course library. And I should say as well that there's been a lot of talk online about the Academy rebuild that we're doing. For the last six or seven months, we've been rebuilding the Academy um, and we're going to be switching to that new design, that completely new platform, uh, hopefully 
at the beginning of November. If you are a, like an Academy member currently, you don't have to worry about anything. Nothing will change for you guys. Just you'll go to the site and it'll look a hell of a lot sexier and there'll be a new functionality and it's just going to blow you away. And um, if you are not an Academy member, you should really check out the Academy now because when we do switch to the new platform, the price of enrollment will be increasing. Okay. So right now is the cheapest that the uh, annual enrollment will ever be, okay, which is $168 for an annual annual enrollment, which works out at doing crazy math here. I think that's around $14 a month. So I don't know how much that is a day. Silly money, you know, I don't know, a few cents a day um, for access to the best online-based school in the world. Um, but just to sweeten the deal for you guys, I know, you know, you can obviously get a 14-day free trial to the Academy. What I wanted to do just to, you know, just to get you in the door so you try this out, is give you a special link to a 30-day free trial. So it's a 30-day free trial. You won't get this anywhere else. You won't find it on the website, okay? It's completely, it's special for you guys. So it's a 30-day free trial, and you can get that at scottsbaselessons.com forward slash 30-day, and that's the number 30-day. Okay, so scottsbaselessons.com forward slash 30-day, and that'll take you to your special 30-day free trial. But again, you won't find that on the website, okay? So if you want that 30-day free trial, so you can try out everything we've got, just go to that URL and you'll get yourself hooked up there. Now, if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes, I'll send you all of my base love if you subscribe and leave a review, as that really helps us get the word out about these interviews, guys. And I really think there's so much to be learned from listening to great bass players, such as the guests that we have on the show. And if you're listening to this anywhere else other than scottsbasslessons.com, make sure you shoot over to the site and check out the show notes for this episode, as I've put some fantastic videos up. Now, if you're completely new to Scott's Bass Lessons, go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit, okay? scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. I put some really cool video resources that you can download on there and check out, like a bass buyer's guide. We've got um, a video where I talk about how to get gigs, great gigs, wherever you are in the world. So if you're moving to a new city or you're trying to break into the scene where you are, i give you some great tips for that. We've got a understanding the modes mini course. We've got a backing track library. There's loads of stuff in there. It's totally free for you to download. Just go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. And also remember if you're an academy member over at scottsbasslessons.com, you can watch the entire video version of this interview as well. Okay. We filmed the entire thing as we do with all our podcasts. We film all of them. And if you're not already an Academy member, just go and check it out over at scottsbasslessons.com. In a nutshell, it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. The step-by-step courses, live seminars every week, the largest online bass educational community in the world. And those guys are so, so supportive and tons more. The whole nine yards. And we have a completely free 14-day trial for you as well. So you can take it for a test drive just to see if it's for you. And if you find it isn't, no sweat, you can cancel your account within the click of two buttons. Now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey guys, how's it going? Scotty from scottsbaselessons.com and I'm here with the amazing Colin Edwin from, now you might have heard the band, he's got a ton of projects going on. I've been checking you out over the last week, Colin, knowing that this interview is coming on, so I've been doing my research 
But Colin is mostly known for the huge band that you were a part of called Porcupine Tree, who, if anybody is not, um, hasn't heard them, it's a really hard thing to kind of sort of like distinguish what kind of style it is. It was, I've written it down here, I've kind of put atmospheric, clever, progressive, sometimes heavy, always epic vocal rock. Would you say that's a kind of... Uh, Pretty close. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sort of like, and I think, um, kind of Floydy, right? It's got that... Yeah, yeah, definitely there's a bit of Floyd in there. Yeah. King Crimson. Yeah, yeah. That type of thing. Yeah, you know, it's kind of cl it was classically classic rock updated with, you know, slightly math metal bits, I guess. Yeah, 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 because it does get really heavy at times, especially in the later albums, it was sort of like, there was a lot of like seriously heavy stuff going on and some crazy time signatures. Obviously, you've got the amazing Gavin Harrison on, on, on kit and we'll talk about playing with Gavin in a, in a little while. But before we get into that, I just, all the interviews we do, we try and give an overview of the listeners of just sort of like your background, because a lot of the listeners are, you know, at the first stages of picking up a bass or they're thinking about going professional and stuff like that. And I think it's really interesting for, for that, those guys to hear about, you know, guys that have done it. So if you rewind the clock, how did you actually find the bass in the first place? Um, well, I was fortunate to be born into quite a musical family. Uh, so my older brother plays classical guitar to a really high standard uh, and I've got twin sisters that, that play, well they did play violin and piano and my dad was a real jazz fan, he played jazz guitar. Oh really, so you were just like, yeah, yeah. Well I just grew up surrounded by music but I never, I never, was never encouraged to play an instrument. Uh, I think because I was the youngest and my parents had worn themselves out <laughs> with the other three. So, uh, did they, did they ever discourage you from doing it? Well, it didn't discourage me. I just, um, I think they just, when you're the youngest, you often don't get taken seriously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I was the kind of, you know, I was a bit younger than the others, so I was a bit um, into other things, you know, but when I got to about 15, I was spending such a long time listening to music, I sort of felt like I wanted to get involved in, in playing, but I didn't really know what to do. So I used to take my dad's guitar and pick it up and play it, you know, yeah. and fiddle about with it. And then actually my mother suggested, uh, why don't you play the bass? Uh, I don't know why, and, but um, really amazing synchronicity uh, was that about a month, my dad reluctantly went and bought me a, a really crappy Fender uh, copy, like a Japanese copy, it was an awful thing. Like a jazz type of thing, yeah. It was a sort of jazz bass, yeah, yeah. I think it was called a Maya, a uh, very cheap thing, a second-hand thing, it's falling apart. But, I sort of liked it, you know, I, I felt comfortable with it. And then the really amazing part of it was about a month later, I met a guy called Martin Elliott, who uh, I'm still in touch with, who's a fantastic bass player. Um, and at the time, he was doing a lot of top session work. He was on the Wogan show in the 80s. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and he lived just down the road from me. So um, he was doing all sorts of things. He was doing West End shows and... I don't know, pop bands and sessions and things. And he said to me, oh, come around my house, I'll show you a few things. Yeah. So um, I went around to see him with my mayor and um, we just sort of got on really well. And he, in a really kind of informal way, showed me a lot of things that, uh, like reading music, how to read music, a lot of uh, rhythmic exercises and scale things and stuff. But he did it in a really kind of, it was just good fun. I used to go around there and we'd have a cup of coffee and sit and play and I'd listen to stuff in his record collection and... And uh, it was uh, it carried on for a couple of years, you know. How old are you at this point? Oh, so I was 15, 16. Got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, and I was motivated enough to, to, to sit and practice a lot um, and, and just do whatever he gave me. And, you know, when you could, the thing is, I think a lot of the time, um, if, I never thought in a million years at 15 I would be a full-time musician. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's not something you imagine doing. But when you meet somebody who's doing it, uh, they put the possibility into your mind. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes I think half the deal with stuff is just seeing it as a possibility. Yeah, knowing that it's possible, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, so that was kind of my first uh, amazingly lucky coincidence, meeting somebody that was really good and it gave me fantastic guidance, you know, very early on. And when, when you met him, was it that that sort of like put that seed in your mind that, wow, I could actually do this as a job? Well, I think it, that grew over time, you know. Um, but I, I knew by the time I got a couple of years older and I was leaving school, I, I didn't really want to do anything else. Yeah. So I'd sort of commit myself to, to trying to make it work, you know. And who were you listening to at this point? What kind of music was it? Well, um, I, I inherited a lot of my... When my sisters moved out, I picked up a lot of their, uh, their records and they were big fans of like the, the disco music from a few years ago. So I had all the Chic albums. Yeah. Great bass lines, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had, uh, I had um, the Stranglers. I used to listen to the Stranglers and some of the late punk stuff. And then my older brother was an enormous, uh, well, he was this classical, classical musician, you know, classically trained, but he loved John Martin. Got you, yeah. And John Martin, I think because of the finger picking, and I remember my brother leaving behind a John Martin album in the room we used to share when he left, went off to university. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to listen to that. It's got some hippie on the cover, you know. <laughs> I, put it on, I put it on, it was an album called Bless the Weather, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got uh, Danny Thompson playing beautiful double bass. Oh, and it just connected with me instantly. I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know. So I got into John Martin, I got into the sound of the double bass, uh, and, uh, you know, all sorts of other things. And the stuff that was current at the time, you know, like the Smiths were a big thing that I'd latched onto early. Yeah. Those great melodic bass lines of Andy Rourke, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then I discovered Jaco Pastorius, but mainly the sort of Joni Mitchell stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is some of his best playing, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was great context for him as well. And how did you you go from... Oh, hey, Gav, you couldn't plug in the laptop, could you? How did you get from, like, being a kid, 15, 16, into, like, tons of different music, into, you know, being a professional musician? When did... How did that transition happen? Um, Somehow or other, and I can't remember how, I met... um, some people that were playing in a, a big band, like a youth big band, and they had sort of jazz gigs on the side, um, which were usually paid, and they were always short of a bass player. Fantastic. So I could just about string together a walking bass line and read the chord chart yeah. um, at the time. So I got a copy of the, the, I mean, now you can get fake books. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just get them off the internet. But I, I sought out a, a fake book from somewhere and uh, I did one, one or two rehearsals and we ended up with my friends just playing these little local gigs like weddings, pubs, hotels. Uh, we did some of the bars in London. We used to go out and play. And that was kind of fairly regular. And that, that started me off, you know. Um, but it was, um, it was a bit of a in at the deep end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, how did you sort of like, what kind of stuff, when you started doing that kind of thing, where you were playing jazz and stuff like that, how did you... How did you get around it? I'm only asking because I was in a really similar situation where I was, went on a cruise ship 
um, doing a gig on a cruise ship and we had to do like a couple of sets of jazz. I'd never played a jazz standing in my life and I just had to kind of scrabble my way through it by listening to, trying to pick up what other bass players were doing off old records and stuff like that. There was no YouTube. There was, you know, <clears throat> nobody to teach me on the boat itself and it was either do it or you're going to get replaced and somebody else is going to come and do it. So were you in a similar situation? It was a bit like that. Yeah, it was a bit like that. I mean, luckily I could read. Um, most of the most of the kind of actual written stuff wasn't too taxing yeah. and the rest of it was chord charts and I understood, <clears throat> I, you know, as, as long as it wasn't too fast, <laughs> you know, and I, I could I could generally get around. And after a little while of doing it, I, I kind of understood more how to put it together. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was it was a bit sink or swim. Yeah, yeah. And you can't. I mean, they did tell me at one point that they had another bass player, and the guy just stopped halfway through a song and said, "I can't do it." And so they fired him. And I remember saying, "Well, you know, thinking, well, I'm never going to do that." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's the horrible moment when you get the rush of blood to the face when you realise you're in a different place to everybody else. But yeah, you know, usually that happens a few times, and then you, you work your way round how to how to solve the problem you, you you know you found yourself in. Yeah, how to sort of like yeah, how to get out of it. An old teacher of mine once said, "I was doing that because I was a classical guitar player when I was a kid. You know, did that whole classical guitar thing." And the teacher said, look, she said, never stop. She said, if you, if you don't stop, you can be wrong, but, you know, if you, if you stop, you're 100% wrong. So she said, just, just battle through. And I've definitely had that sort of, like, it's always kind of stuck with me, you know, just trying to sort of, like, find your way back onto the path of what's going on. So were you living in London at this point? Was it down in... Yeah, just yeah. outside London. Yeah, and what was the music scene like then? Was it cool? Well, I mean, there's always been sort of local bars and, and pubs, you know, there's always music going on. Um, but the proximity to London is really, you know, central London's really good. So at the time, uh, uh, fast forward a couple of years, and I was doing a lot more in, in London, some yeah. of the big restaurants and, and bars and places where they had bands. And were you always doing original bands as well at the same time? Or? I've always kept something on the side, you know, even when I was doing, you know, sort of scratch gigs and, and filling in the jazz gigs, I was always, uh, trying to do something creative, you know, myself. Yeah, yeah. How, when did the Porcupine Tree gig come up? It was like early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I knew Steve from years ago, Steve Watson from a long time ago, and he, he came round and said, do you want to play on this album I've got, just one track? Um, and it was a, a thing he was doing that was more or less a joke at the time. Yeah. Uh, but it had been picked up by a, a very small label and um, they were committed, I think, to doing a couple of records. So I played on one track, and then a little while later he said, oh, they've asked me to play live, and because uh, he didn't have a band, he was doing it all in his, his bedroom, you know. Yeah. And um, so I went and we did a sort of rehearsal with a couple of guys, uh, and it never went beyond that. It was just one rehearsal, and I think he didn't like it. Like, it didn't go well, I don't know. It, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Then about a year later, um, he got offered a slightly more serious gig. It was like a, uh, a Mark Radcliffe radio session or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, the little label guy put together maybe three or four gigs and we did the radio session over a week. So um, Steve said to me, yeah, I'm going to use, you know, I'd like you to play bass. And I've got this guy, Chris Maitland, on drums. And uh, he worked already with uh, Richard Barbieri, the keyboard player. Um, who might people might know from Japan in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah. 
So we all got together in a rehearsal studio for a week just to rehearse a little set and then to go and do a few gigs as a warm-up and then the radio session. And that was the end of it. There was no talk of doing anything else. No world tours yet. <laughs> no, there was, you know, it was, it was music at the time that was just outside of anything. Yeah. You, know, you couldn't go and hear a band play sort of, you know, one of the tunes was a half hour long sort of orb type thing about LSD, you know, it's not going to be mainstream. So, but anyway, we got together for a week and I think it, we surprised, it, you know, everything was surprising. It worked really, really well. <coughs> so it came together very quickly and the first gig I can remember, there'd been a little bit of airplay. Uh, so the very first gig, which was only a, a medium-sized kind of pub venue, and it was packed, it was completely packed. And I, it was me thinking there'd be no one there, you know, so that wow. was really surprising. And it yeah. went really, really well. No one had seen us before, no one knew anything about the band, but there were enough people, and people would come from miles around to see it. So that was the first thing, you know. <coughs> anyway, I still didn't expect it to go anywhere. Yeah. I went back to Australia for a little while, thinking I would uh, maybe go and try my luck in Australia. Oh yeah, because you're from Melbourne, aren't you? Yeah. We, are your folks, are your folks still in Melbourne? No, no, my, uh, my parents emigrated in the, in the uh, late 60s. Got you. So you actually grew up over in the UK, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. I was born there. Yeah. I spent the very early part of my life there and then, then they came back. But my older sister, one of them went back to live. So I've got a connection there. So you just thought, what the hell, I'll go over. Yeah, I, I, I've been back a few times, you know, and anyway, I thought I would go. So I went to Australia, kind of forgot about anything. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And then I remember getting a message. Uh, we had this festival booked and there were more gigs. And then, so I came back and I thought, oh, you know, but it still wasn't for another couple of years. <coughs> you know, we started doing a few more albums and things before I actually kind of took it seriously as a, I mean, seriously, as a that it was a viable thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a full-time thing, kind of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't. I, I can remember even what you know. Years later, we did a, a tour of the UK for about a month in tiny clubs and, and places all up and down Scotland, everywhere. Yeah. And we were playing to maybe I don't know, a hundred to hundred and fifty people a night. Got you. And then we went to Italy. We were booked to play a gig in Rome. I've no idea why. We were just told there was interest in a, in a, from a radio station in Rome to put on a concert. Yeah. And they booked us into this enormous theatre. Well, for us at the time, enormous theatre, you know, like a 2,000 capacity theatre. It wasn't like a 100 person pub, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we were thinking that this is it's still 10 times larger than, than what we were doing, you know. Yeah. And we had no idea, it's pre-internet, okay, so we had no idea if anyone was going to be into it. No, we haven't had any messages from it. You know, these days you get messages from people, you know, like, we did your stuff. You know. There was none of that. There was no possibility of understanding what it was about. So we're sitting backstage and they open the doors and I'm just convinced it's going to be a real embarrassment, you know, it's going to be, we're playing, playing this intense music to about 10 people. <laughs> uh, we open them, you know, we can hear people coming in, you know, we start, we're looking out the curtains and they're, they're, they're going crazy every time the roadie guy goes out to tune a guitar because they don't know what we look like or anything. Oh yeah, because it's pre-internet, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And it was just like a fantastic gig, you know, we had this great gig in front of, I don't know, maybe 1,500 to 2,000, something like that. It's quite a significant crowd for us at the time, yeah, it was yeah. amazing. So that was a real eye-opener as well, you know, we went somewhere, we had no connection. Well, Richard Barbieri, obviously, is Italian name, he's got an Italian father. But yeah. We had no, uh, no connection with Italy, we had no idea anyone was interested, maybe 
the label had said they'd sold a box of CDs or something, you know, in the whole of Italy. We just didn't know. And was that the start of something? Yeah, it was really because that, that was kind of followed. There were a few uh, a few places that followed in a similar way. So we went to Greece, I remember, and and that was great. There was a big following in Greece when we got there, and then we went to Poland. Uh, all these places outside of the major <laughs> sort of territories, if you like. Yeah. But what that enabled us to do was was we could go to to places, you know, like Germany, for example and play small clubs because we had the support of a bigger audience somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So kind yeah. of, we climbed the ladder, you know, kind of up, down, up, down, up, down, but, but in, it was always going forward, you know. When did it become huge? Because if anybody goes onto the internet and puts like Porcupine Tree live, it's like, it's the full shebang. It's like lighting show, it's like epic, it's like thousands and thousands of people. It's the, you know, when did that happen? Or was it just a, was it a slow, steady climb? Very slow, a very slow, um, very slow process. I mean, gradually, each time we went out, we would play bigger places, we played some more people, and we'd do more shows. But it was a very organic, yeah. and very slow growth. There, there was nothing, you know, we never had a hit single, we never had airplay. In, in any significant form. Uh, there was no uh, TV, very little, uh, maybe a couple of things, uh, tiny bit of TV. How do you think the name got around? How did people find out about you? I expect there's loads of kids listening to this and they're thinking, how did people find out? Because obviously they're sort of like, haven't lived before the internet, you know? Well, very much word of mouth. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes after a gig, you know, it's say, oh, I brought my mate along, you know, and, and, and you know, it's, it's very much like that. But of course, the problem with that is it takes years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and it did, and you were at it for almost, yeah. almost 20 years? A long time, yeah, yeah. A long time. Maybe 17 odd years, yeah. yeah. For, you know, I mean, initially it was, it was, we would go maybe work for two or three months a year, the first few years. Yeah. And then it became just more and more. And by the time we got signed to a major label in America, um, which was one of the last kind of traditional major label deals that they don't seem to do anymore. Yeah. By the time that happened, you know, we were doing it, you know, six to eight months a year uh, and more. You know? Really just sort of like full on all the time, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of touring. Uh, we did like, you know, around America in a bus quite a few times and, uh, you know, Europe as well. Good times. <laughs> Good times, yeah, them tour buses, they're really great, aren't they, yeah. <laughs> what was the uh, just from a sort of like personal point of view like something I've always been interested in in sort of like is the writing process that you guys used what did that could you speak to that kind of like what did that look like in terms of were you handed sort of you know a basic outline or was it just like all guys in a rehearsal studio jamming it out like what happened uh, a lot of the stuff particularly early on was written by Steve Wilson yeah and we would, uh, you know, in the very early days, because he'd done the first record on his own, uh, the first couple of records on his own. So other than the tracks that I played on and Richard played on when we recorded them, um, it was very much like replacing, like he'd use drum machines on the records, for example. Yeah. So we were just really working it in the studio, in the rehearsal room to make it live. But as time went on, you know, we had more and more input. I think he initially didn't, didn't really know where he wanted to go with the band, you know, because he started the whole thing. Um, but then we always had, um, later on, he would de often demo stuff and then we'd work on it and maybe organically change it or, or not if it didn't need. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it doesn't need, uh, you know, you don't need to put your stamp on everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. Working. 
And then later on, we always had group writing sessions as well. So when the time came to do an album, we'd often get together, work on the existing material that he had or had started, uh, and then we would we would work some other stuff up between us. Yeah. Um, so people would come along with you know small ideas, and we'd all work them out together Sorted and in, yeah. stitch it together. You know, develop it that way. And was your bass style always kind of like when I think about your bass bass lines, they're all always like generally like super melodic. There's a lot of um, like motifs and stuff that you use. Um, is that something that you've always had? Like, have you always been into melodic bass players, or is it something that you developed along the way? No, I think that's something I picked up on quite early on because I was always told that. Yeah. You know, oh, you've got quite a melodic style. I, I think. I started moving around a lot on the neck, well not a lot compared to some people, but I initially I had a real problem with counting bars. Yeah. So I used to do things like play a pattern and then play it an octave higher, so that I only had to count to four instead of eight. Yeah, 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 so you sort of like marked it for yourself. Yeah, yeah it, it became a way of me sometimes make, playing things slightly differently and moving them around. It was just a way of me knowing where I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, it was out of a... Uh, you know, the fear of <laughs> getting lost. <laughs> and then that developed into your own style? Yeah, I guess so, yeah, yeah. What kind of gear were you using? Like, what kind of gear have you used through the years of Porcupine Tree? Well, I started off doing everything on a wall fretless. Yeah, because I, I always think, when I think about you, I think of fretless. I, I just do, like... Right. Yeah. Well, initially, especially the early earlier material, there was less of the metal influence. Yeah. Um, so, uh, playing a fretless, it's, it's more spacious, atmospheric kind of music, and, and the fretless fit really, really well. So, I, I did that for, you know, for the first six or seven years, pretty much exclusively, uh, on uh, all the gigs and all the recordings are my wall fretless and then a couple of things happened the music got heavier so i started i was encouraged to use a pick yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. i was dragged kicking and screaming into that wall. <laughs> uh, i didn't at the time you were encouraged i didn't like, <laughs> I didn't like it i just uh, i didn't like that it, that feeling of not being connected to the strings yeah yeah it's a physical thing and because i'm playing upright as well i like the feeling of the fingers on the strings yeah but anyway, I got into it. I got into it and I really enjoyed using a pick now. It's just something else I do. Yeah, yeah. But that and the combination of, of the heavier material uh, meant the fretless didn't really fit. Got you, yeah. All the time. And I wasn't wedded to it, you know. I, I'm not. I, I like playing the fretless and I, I still do it. But I thought perhaps I should reevaluate playing the fretless all the time, you know. And, and did you play. You did play it towards the end, though, as well, sometimes, didn't you? On certain tracks. Yeah, well, it came out again. Later on, you <laughs> it know, went full circle. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I got. I had the other thing was we were doing a lot more, a lot more touring, and all bases kind of uh, finished. Sadly, Pete the fish died, yeah. um, and and the, it kind of disappeared. And I started to really worry because I bought my wall bases when they were worth very little. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody wanted them. They were kind of seen as a bit passe. But yeah. I always really liked them. And uh, I just kept kept mine, I played them, and then I started to worry, because I was realising that it wasn't just the fact that they were getting worth more, you know, more money, because yeah. I couldn't replace them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, uh, I'm sure you've had this too, but I had some terrible experiences with airlines. 
Yeah, I've had some bad experiences with airlines, yeah. This is coming out all destroyed and, and you know, well, they just lie to you. You know, you put it in the hold and, and it comes out, you know, with a sort of tyre track over it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I can actually remember sitting on a plane in America and watching a baggage handler. You know, it's got fragile written on it. Pick yeah. it up and throw it, you know, yeah, yeah. to the truck's like. <laughs> I can remember I was uh, I was flying out to uh, Barcelona and for a gig, and the guitar player I was flying out with, he said to he made a big, you know, he was like, "Do not put anything on top of this guitar. Whatever you do, it's super fragile, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And they were like, "Okay, we won't put anything on top of it." So anyway, we boarded the plane, and we're sitting on the plane looking out the window. And there's one of these little baggage carts coming over, and on the back of this baggage cart is this huge mound. Of, of luggage and right on the top balanced is a guitar his guitar and as the, he stopped it just shot off the top and onto the tarmac yeah so yeah they yeah they uh it's an interesting an interesting uh uh experience sometimes flying for sure why did you have you had a few destroyed on, on the on the road? Yeah. Well, I've never had a base destroyed, but I've had cases come out, you know, completely mangled, and I've had uh, I've had you know, well, other people I've been with have had experiences like um, they open the case and you can see where maybe the prong of a forklift, <laughs> you know, like maybe it, yeah. flight case is metal, but it might have it might not be metal uh, all the way around. It's got like a wooden part. Yeah, yeah. And the metal edging, and, and you can see I'd seen that before with somebody's Gibson. A, a prong of a forklift truck has gone into it. It's the like hole. it's maybe been on a pallet, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they missed the wherever the prong goes in the pallet, and it's just gone through the. Cab. I swear they just look at the fragile stuff and they treat that badly. You know, maybe it should be sort of like you should put stickers on saying unfragile, and maybe they take care of it. But um, I want to talk about Gavin Harrison because obviously fantastic. Not this Gavin Harrison here. <laughs> Different Gavin Harrison. Um, but uh, when he joined the band, obviously, like if I think about his playing, it's obviously amazing. But he's got a really, really um, great way of shifting the beat and of playing in odd time signatures, but almost implying that there is an odd time signature when there isn't an odd time signature going on. When he joined the band, was that something that he started doing straight away? And as a bass player, because you're there, you're locked with the drums. How did that initially feel and how has that developed over the years? Well, it was quite an interesting thing because Chris Maitland, who, who came before Gavin, had a, a, a very different kind of style. Yeah. Um, and um, in some ways, the, the, the change was really different. Uh, and in some ways, it was very similar. Um, but Gavin definitely, he didn't start doing all that straight away. Because <laughs> initially, he was working on... Um, you know, the older stuff with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we went out and played, we were playing the older stuff. And then we were also uh, working on the new album, which by the time he, he came for an album called In Absentia, and by the time he came on board, it was all, you know, we kind of worked it up to the point where we were going to record it. So he really just came in for the recording sessions. Yeah. But in the recording sessions, I mean, he, he'd had a lot of experience. He wasn't very well known at the time. I knew him because he was actually a friend of Martin Elliott. Oh, right, got you. So yeah. I knew him from, from years before, and even before that I'd seen him play um, just in a pub, uh, you know, with, with playing jazz, and, and he was great even then. Yeah. But he got into this rhythmic illusion 
uh, business, which is quite... The book, Rhythmic Illusions, I think he's actually got a book called Rhythmic Illusions. Oh, books, yeah. Well, it's, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of explain it. <coughs> Basically, if you, if you have bush, bash, but you know, bass drum, snare drum, boom, cha, if you hear that, you're, you're always going to hear one, two, three, four. You can't help but hear that, right? Yeah. <coughs> but he will play that all moved along, say a sixteenth. Yeah, he'll move the entire thing, just one sixteenth. And it's not hard to play, but it's mentally. Yeah. You're so used to hearing it the other way. So that's a very brief example of it. And he will be able to imply that the time is somewhere else. I mean, you could say it's a, it's a mathematical idea. Yeah. Um, which it is, I guess. But the, the trick is to try and use it in a musical way, which I think, you know, when we had ideas like that going on the records, I think it, it, it does, you're not sitting there counting the beats, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, you're just trying to find the groove. For you, did you just kind of have to sort of like really lock down in your mind where the one was, where you're just thinking, right, that's... I definitely had to, uh, I definitely had to do a bit, bit of work on, on uh, my accuracy and stuff uh, when it came to playing with Gavin, because his style was was much, much more accurate than Chris. Yeah, Chris yeah. is a real energy rock drummer. Yeah. So this kind of full-on thing, and, and, and it worked in a different way with Chris. Um, I started to think a lot more about some of the ideas. Um, but actually, as it happens, I've always been fascinated by odd time signatures. Have you? Is that something that you've always been into? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it always fascinated me. I, and I can date that back to listening to Ivo Papasov. Bulgarian clarinet player. I was, yeah. We used to get random albums out of the library when I was a kid. And there was... Man, I haven't heard the name for years. That's bizarre. Blast in the past, yeah. Right. But it was like this weird, weird shit. You know, we'd never heard anything like that before. And it was just a curiosity thing. But when I actually sat and listened to it, you'd think, it sounds like they're all drunk, you know. <laughs> yeah. You count it, you realise maybe they're playing in nine or something. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's it's really fast. So, but then I started to think, well, this is Bulgarian folk music, yeah. but it's natural to these people. Yeah, they just feel that. Yeah, they're not sitting there studying it for years. It's their traditional music. They come from that tradition. So I got really interested in that. I mean, you know, Bulgarians know more or less music musical than we are, but they have this influence going on yeah. that that shapes them in a different way. And that whole idea really really got me thinking. You know. Yeah, if we'd been listening to, you know, to, like music, if every pop song that you listened to was in 9-8, we'd feel 9-8 really, really great, you know, we'd be great, you know, we'd be great at it, yeah. But it's just what your, what your you know, what your influences are. Well not, well, not what your influences are, but what's just, you know, you hear continuously as you're growing up, I suppose, just sort of like seeps in, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I, I had listened already to, I wasn't really a big listener of the sort of classic prog rock at all. Yeah. But I used to listen to things like Gong and, and Magma and those kind yeah, of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of that going on, uh, in, in Gong especially, some of that stuff, you know. So it, it didn't feel too weird for me, but it was weird enough for me to want to really investigate it. So when, did you know when Gavin Harrison was coming into the band, did, did you know that that was going to be part of it? Did you think, yes, this is going to be great? <laughs> oh, no, no, I didn't think that. I just knew that he would do a good job. Yeah. Uh, initially, you know, when we were doing the album, we were under quite a lot of pressure to, to do it in time, uh, to finish it in time. So we had a bit of time pressure and we had a, you know, it's a big thing. It's a big difference in, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to explain, but we'd spent ages uh, doing the band our way, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a small label and a sw and progressively a slightly bigger label, and then suddenly it's like, 
well, we've got to have go to America, we've got to really put in the commitment. So that's a little bit sort of uh, scary in, in, at the time, you know, you, yeah. you're kind of, you're casting out all your other, all your other commitments in a way and just following that one path. When it turns into a business, but it's like, yeah, the, pretty the, much, the band's yeah. business we're, and yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of financial input from, from the American label, which doesn't happen now in the same way, but in return, you know, we can't go, well, let's not do that gig, you know, or let's not do this tour, <laughs> you know, we had to kind of commit to, yeah. to what we were being asked to do, that's the bargain. So. Um, Initially, my first thought was that I knew Gavin would do a fantastic job on the album. And uh, then what followed that was a whole load of gigs in America that weren't so fun. <laughs> uh, you know, and there was a lot of work and a lot of travel and, and stuff. But, you know, we, we got through that. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what, was it the touring that finally kind of just sort of like, because obviously you guys are on a hiatus at the minute, aren't you? You haven't gigged in five years, is it? You haven't gigged in Yeah, about six years. Five or six years. Was it the touring that finally, was you just like, can't do this anymore? Uh, we, we, def we agreed to take some time off. Yeah. Uh, at, at the, you know, the, by the time we got to the last uh, gig of the last tour, and yeah. it was a very healthy thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's hard to explain again, you know, to people that haven't done it, but if I'd have actually thought being a professional musician meant spending months of my life on a bus with 10 other guys, <laughs> the crew as well, you know, I'd have thought twice about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, this is great experiences in, in, I love to travel, and uh, I'm, I'm always interested in going to different places, but that's, that can get to be a grind. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it can get really difficult um, because you can't step out of it, you know. Yeah, it's like a bubble that you have to live in, isn't it, day in, day out. Yeah, yeah you've yeah. committed to that, you know, you get a three-month tour, you know, but then you're away from your family and all the rest of it. So it's, it's quite a good thing to, uh, to, uh, to have a break. <laughs> when, when, when you knew, did you have sort of like prior knowledge that this hiatus was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. And when you did, did you think, right, I'm going to get sort of like was it straight into the your own projects because i know that you've got your own projects going on did you have anything lined up or were you just sort of like putting out feelers for it i had a couple of things <clears throat> lined up so I, I think um the first thing was john durant this american guitar player yeah yeah that was with burnt belief wasn't it yeah that's right well he contacted me initially uh one of the first things i did and said do you want to come to america and play on my album and i'd met him a couple of times before but I didn't know him very well. And my first thought was, well, he lives in Boston, right? Yeah. Boston's got the home of Berkeley. So I'm thinking, he's living in a city with thousands of musicians. You know, why does he want me? That's my first <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, and then he said, well, you know, it doesn't really work. I've tried with these Berkeley people and I'm really after this different vibe. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to do this too jazz thing. It's got to be a more modal thing. And, but I'm still, I'm sitting on the plane thinking, you know, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you've got to commit to it. As yeah, you do. absolutely, yeah. And um, it went really, really well. And uh, I was really a sort of hired hand initially, but um, I ended up making a few suggestions and I, I, I thought, oh, should I keep my mouth shut? You know, this kind of situation, when you're, when you're sort of in a, like a session musician, if you like, yeah. you don't always want to say necessarily what, what you think. Absolutely, yeah. It's just because it's not your place. Your yeah. place is to play the play the bass part. Yeah. But uh, I ended up making a few suggestions that he really liked. 
So he, he kind of gave me a bit more input on the record than, than perhaps he was thinking he would do. Which for someone who wants to make their own record and who's made their own records in the past, is quite a big step. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Did you do any programming on, on those records or not? Not on the very, the very first one we did um, was live in the studio. Uh, and that's under John's name. Got it. But uh, about a year later, John said, I, I really want to work on some more material. And I'd like you to, you know, we should um, start writing together because it had gone really well. And, and one of the things that I enjoy doing a lot um, is programming drums and, and rhythms. So this is something that I wanted to ask you about as well. Is that always because when I've been, you know, listening to you and listening to your different projects, there is definitely sort of like, I would say that you're just to just to sort of like jump to conclusions i would say that you're definitely interested in kind of like sound design and programming and the atmosphere that that creates is that something that you've always been into yeah well i um i guess a slight ocd tendency <laughs> but uh, i can sit and i'm very happy moving you know bits of midi around and triggering different sounds and yeah. and, and that comes out of my interest in odd time signatures. I mean, when I first got a sampler, one of the first things I did was take the loop everybody uses, like a James Brown loop. Yeah, yeah. And do it in nine or seven, you know, <laughs> in a different way, just to see what would happen. But I've always been interested in the programming thing, and, and it was good to have a context, yeah. you know, to, to, to do it, to, to expand on it uh, with John. And John's quite happy that I'd take care of that because he's not really interested in that. Is he not interested in that at all? So all the a little bit, but he's you know he's a guitar player. He, he likes doing his textural guitar playing and his his. Uh, so it's a good combination. When we when we work together, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, I do the kind of rhythmic elements. Yeah. And he tends to do the more melodic elements. Got you. Uh, in terms of the the top line. Is it a live drummer on that? Are you programming drums as well? Uh, the f well, we've always had uh, live percussion. So even when I've programmed, like the first album we did together, we used a, a, a percussionist. And the last two albums, we've had uh, drummers. Right, got you. And are you just sort of like programming sort of like percussion tracks to go along with it? And Yeah, usually, I actually quite like the combination of electronic and human. Yeah, that's what I thought, like listening to that. Like even like certain parts of it wouldn't be sort of like out of place on like a massive attack kind of, you know, that sort of like mezzanine and stuff like that. I was like, just that the atmosphere that it was creating, kind of, kind of dark, and it had that sort of like mezzanine vibe to it. Were you into Massive Attack? Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought, you know, just a, when I was listening to it, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just reminded me of that album. Love, I really love that album. And what else did you, so you've got the the um, that stuff going on, but you've also got another duo going on, haven't you, as well? Well, there's various things. I mean, one of the other first things that I did after Porcupine Tree stopped working was. Um, I hooked up with an Italian guy called Araldo Bernocchi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that has led to so many other things um, in Italy and in the UK. It turned out Araldo um, is a, a partner in a label based in the UK called Rare Noise. Okay. And Rare Noise have got some really interesting acts. But we did an album together under the name Metallic Taste of Blood, which yeah. is quite, quite sort of heavy. And through the Metallic Taste of Blood album, I was sitting at home one day and, and the guy from, from Rare Noise rings me up and says, oh, are you free next week? He said, I've got a bass player from Italy coming over to do, um, to do some clinics and he's got a day off. Do you fancy doing a gig? So I'm thinking, 
First of all, if you've got a bass player free for the day, why do you ask another bass player? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was really strange, but I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. It's a day, you know, I will, he said, well, we'll do a rehearsal, do a rehearsal. I'll put you in touch with Lorenzo, do a rehearsal, and then I'll book a gig somewhere. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. We, we met up, we played for about half an hour, <laughs> we had a jam, and then we, the next day we went and did a gig in London. Amazing. And, uh, it was great, it was fantastic. And Lorenzo Feliciati, um, after the gig, the guy from the label came over and said, do you want to do a record together? Really? Wow. So, uh, it's simple as that. And um, it, it worked really, really well. I mean, we started off just, we got together in a studio in, in uh, near Brighton on the south coast and, we, and we, we pretty much did the whole album in a weekend Yeah. and then went away and built up our parts and then we were really lucky to have some fantastic guests Amazing. come and play so um, we had uh, Nils Petter-Moore there, the trumpet player Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a guy called David Jackson who in the 70s was in a band called um, Van de Graaff Generator it's a <laughs> great fantastic, uh, I don't know if you know them the old frog band but they I haven't heard of his great name oh, saxophone <laughs> And uh, we had a really great percussionist. I'm, I'm a big fan of Nick Betch, you know, um, yeah. Swiss uh, ECM. Yeah, I love all the ECM stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, his percussionist uh, for a few years was a guy called Andy Pupato. Okay. Um, so we had these, these people, and then I, I was thinking, who would be the best person to mix this album, you know? And I thought, how about um, Bill Laswell? <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, fantastic. And I it? love Bill Laswell's productions. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Bill Laswell mixed it. Did you just reach out to him and just be like, do you fancy doing There's this? There's a connection, which I was a little bit aware of. There's a connection between him and Rare Noise. Got you. Uh, so Giacomo Brusso, who runs Rare Noise Records, also does a little bit of work uh, managing some of Bill's projects. Yeah. Um, so he, he reached out to him and he just, he did it. So it was, the whole thing, Started out with from a phone call and, and I just realised the power of saying yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So uh, we, yeah, we've done a few, we've we've done quite a few gigs together. Ne uh, next month, uh, sorry, in November, I'm going to Italy uh, to play with Lorenzo Feliciati. We're doing a short tour again, uh, and there'll be some more. You know, it's it's a, but it's a fantastic context to play with another bass player. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what what do you do? How do you manage that then? Are you sort of like, is one of you providing low end and the other one's providing the, you know, are you basically keeping out of each other's, you know, toes? Who, who kind of sort of like... It's a curious thing and one of the reasons why it worked so well was that we had very similar influences. Got it. Um, but Lorenzo would do things in a slightly different way. So we had enough influence shared, if you like, mm. that we can relate to each other really easily. But he would still do some wild things that I would never do. And I guess it's the other way around. I would do some things that he would never do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but he, uh, one of the things I like to do a lot is use an Ebo. And um, I do some textual stuff with delays. And it's very hard to find a context to do that in. For anybody that hasn't, I know what an Ebo is, but if anybody hasn't heard of an Ebo, can you, can you tell them what, the, what it is? Because it's a weird, a weird thing. In fact, I can reach over and, and here it is. It's, it's here. It's this little thing here. Yeah, so yeah. You put it near the strings, and the strings vibrate. The little light comes. It looks like sort of like a, I don't know, sort of like a peep, part of a washing machine or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's a thing, but you, you can do some really interesting sounds. There's a bit of technique involved in that. It's very sensitive. So if you put it right near the strings, um, it'll 
the hit the strings, if it will buzz, you get this horrible fart. Yeah. If you go too far away from the strings, it doesn't make any sound at all. And there's a sort of sweet spot where it will work. So it basically makes the string vibrate, is that correct? Yeah. Basically, yeah. <coughs> it makes the string vibrate with no attack. Yeah. So it does, I guess, well, it's called an e-bow, so it does a similar thing to a bow on an upright. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I use, I, do you use that in conjunction with delays and reverbs and... Yeah, there's a whole chain of effects you can do. Usually with delay it works really well because you can get a swell. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can shift from, you know, one note to the next without a, any attack. Have you got a colossal effects board? Not really, no. What, I, what, what's, what's on the effects board? I, I'm a big fan of uh, the Digitech Timebender. Enormous fan of that. And it's yeah. one of the things that Digitech discontinued. Uh, and I told uh, the distributor, if, you know, I asked him, I said, why do you distribute the most amazing delay pedal, you know? Yeah. He just said, oh, nobody wants to spend the time learning how to use it. <laughs> so how is that different from a normal delay? That's a harmonic delay. So you play a note and, and you know, it can, you can get your repeat back as a fifth or on top or a third or whatever you choose. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And you can get a multi, uh, you know, you can get like one note and then you can get, you know, like maybe the third, the fourth and the, the fifth come back to you. Yeah, yeah. So it does that really well, but it's, it's also got uh, kind of preset tap delay things. So patterns that are usually quite complex uh, to program, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of those in there. You them. can do it on the fly, yeah, yeah. You can do it quite easily, yeah. And it's got a looper and, and all sorts of things. Man. So I like to use that. Um, I've got the usual selection of modulation and fuzz and, uh, and uh, compressor and all the kind of usual stuff, but I've yeah. got a couple of weird things like a super ego pedal. A super ego pedal. You know that one? That's uh, electro-harmonics. It's, it's just like when you're feeling a little shy. When you're feeling a little nervous, you just step on the super ego. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. It's like a synth engine pedal. Wow. So that's great for, uh, great for textural stuff as yeah. well. What else is on there? Uh, I'm just looking, actually. I've got the, uh, an, a Ravish sitar. You know that one? That's, uh, no. It's a sitar emulation. So no. it's the sort of thing, Amazing. one of the things I like about electroharmonics is they seem to develop things that three people in the whole world will want. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, but it's quite deep. You can play a scale, you know, in the way a sitar has sympathetic strings. Yeah. So you can program it to play uh, within a given scale. So you play the scale in and, the, you know, you've got your fundamental note that you play and these resonant strings. So it creates that effect. It's quite deep, actually. It's got a lot of preset stuff as well, but, but it's, it's... Is it just like a regular pedal, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Man, on eBay tonight. <laughs> Watch out, everybody. <laughs> it's quite flexible tonally as well, you know. You can yeah, change yeah, the, yeah. the amount of sympathetic string or... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Just have the fundamental string. But, I mean, you know, who's going to want that, apart from me and maybe <laughs> Well, I'm me as well, yeah. So there's two of us, I don't know, yeah, yeah. Listen, Colin, man, thanks for coming on. It's been an absolute blast speaking to you. Where can people find you? Have you got any sort of like current projects you want to shoot out, you know, that tell people about so they can come and, you know, heckle or whatever you want them to do? Like, what have you got going on right now? Okay, uh, well, I'm just gearing up for the release of my new album uh, with John Durant, which is called Emergent. So that's under the name Bone Belief. It's uh, ambient stuff with guitar and, and pro you know and a, 
how did we describe it earlier? It's like world music with ambient influences and yeah, programming and I'm um, yeah. playing a lot of fretless bass on that. Yeah. Um, then after that, the next thing coming out is I play with a, a rare noise, another rare noise associated act called Obarque, which is uh, I'm using exclusively downtuned Spectre. Oh really? So oh. that's the kind of brutally heavy. Uh, band that I got involved in. I got involved in so many things through Rare Noise. Yeah. Uh, they're the next two things I'm doing. And then shortly after that, I'm going to be doing some more gigs with Twinscapes. Hopefully we're going to hit the UK, maybe November, December, but I'll be, uh, I'll be in Italy with them. And should I, hook, should I hook people up to, have you got a website? Yes, yes, it's just colinedwin.co.uk. Yeah, Facebook? Yeah, that's on there somewhere. I think it's uh, Colin Edwin Official. Well, this is going to be sort of like on scottsbasslessons.com. What I'll do is I'll make sure all the links are there for everybody to like link through. Even the website, there's links to all the other things, you know, the, yeah. the, the Facebook and the Twitter and all the rest of it. Mega, mega. Awesome. Well, Colin, great to have you on. Guys, thank you for hanging out and, you know, taking part in this podcast and listening along or watching wherever you, wherever you are in the world. Okay, guys, hope you enjoyed that interview with Colin Edwin. Again, huge shout out to Colin as well for, you know, well, just coming in and hanging out with me for an hour and uh, and talking all things groove again if you want to check out the show notes where i put some videos for colin you can just go over to the videos of colin video yeah videos of colin i've been playing with the band porcupine tree right so you can go over to the website scottsbasslessons.com and find it there just navigate to podcasts you'll see colin's where you can check out the show notes for his podcast interview but also you can check out all the other podcasts as well with you know ricky minor hadrian Frode, tim lafave nick west uh, you know everybody uh, chris cheney is one of my favorites there's just a ton of different podcasts over there for you to check out so make sure you go and do that and also remember if you're an academy member you can also watch the entire video version of our interviews as well so if you're not already an academy member go check it out over at scottsbassessence.com in a nutshell it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world there's step-by-step courses live seminars every week with some of the best bass educators in the planet on the planet in the planet on the planet and tons more the whole nine yards and we've got a completely free 14 day free trial for you but right now you can get a special 30 day free trial okay if you go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash 30 day that's three zero day to grab that special 30 day free trial before the enrollment price goes up when we switch to the new platform which will be coming in early november remember if you are currently an academy member you don't need to worry about anything everything's just going to stay the same for you you'll just go to the academy and it's just going to look a hell of a lot sexier and have all these new additions that will blow your mind now again thanks again for listening today guys next week we'll be joined by mark saunders who is bass player the low-end provider for the humongous band Florence and the Machine. It's a fantastic interview, but when you check it out, listen to the story about the P-Bass. You'll get it when you listen to it. I absolutely love this story. He tells, it. you know, it's about him working with this super, super high-profile producer that had been called in to do their third record, and I'm actually not going to tell you. I'm not, you're going to have to wait till next week and check it out on the podcast. But look out for the story about the P-Bass, okay? It's super, super cool, and it's something that all of us bass players kind of geek out on, you know, does that actually happen in real life? Uh, and it did happen to Mark, and he tells us all about it in next week's 
episode of the SPL podcast. So other than that, guys, as always, take it easy and I'll see you in the shed. <laughs>